I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and this is Sound Strategic, our podcast to showcase the extraordinary analytic talent of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And I am delighted today to have with us Dr. Masa Rui. She, her PhD is in politics and international studies from the University of Cambridge. She did her MA in political theory from the University of Sheffield and her BA in economics from Shahid Beshti University in Iran. She is a central part of our nuclear nonproliferation and policy program and she is an extraordinary expert on Iran. Masa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with you. She's doing double duty because she gave a fabulous talk on her research at our IISS research retreat today. Uh, and so she was talking about the work she's been doing, the work she wants to do, and everyone was piling on in a dog pile arguing about the important issues and the important research that she's done. So Masa, I want to start you off with our standard question, which feels slightly ridiculous to ask you given your subject, but recommend something you're working on that's in the news these days. Well, what's really um, getting a lot of attention in the news these days is the escalating tensions between U.S. and Iran, and so this has been the focus um, of my work, uh, particularly uh, the new announcement uh, by Tehran about how um, they will uh, not abide uh, with certain aspects of commitments uh, under JCPOA. And um, also the, the tensions in the region and in the Gulf. And um, so all of this is happening. And I'm focusing on Iran's uh, foreign policy decision making and sort of a strategic vision and objectives uh, in pursuing its policies. So one of the things that we were talking about in the research retreat today that I'm just, I'm so intrigued by your view on is that Henry Kissinger famously said Iran has to decide whether it's a revolution or a normal state. And your work suggests that that's a false dichotomy. Talk our listeners through how you think about Iran's perception of itself, its strategy, and whether it's succeeding on their own terms. Sure. So as I mentioned, the, the, I think um, this question of whether Iran is a normal state or uh, a cause um, is, is a false dichotomy. And the reason for that is that the, the Iran, what we consider as Iran's ideological policies, um, i.e. their support for uh, their proxies in the region, um, is really actually part of their defense and deterrence strategy in the region. And so I argue that ideology should be actually understood as um, what sort of gives Iran a particular unifying power uh, in building its strategic alliances with the non-state actors in the region. And so the way we should think about it is that really ideology is a, is a, is a thread that is woven, or revolutionary ideology, I, I should say, um, in their strategic thinking, in their pursuit of their interests um, uh, in the region. And uh, you know, 
that is very important to understand because mostly we hear discussion about is Iran pursuing national interest or is Iran pursuing the export of the revolution? And, and, and that really is not how things are perceived um, and pursued in Tehran. Uh, it, it is actually the other way around, that the, the ideology is at the service of um, sort of expanding their influence from their perspective, obviously, of how what they see as national interest and what they see as their um, as the policies that will help them uh, with uh, with you know ensuring their security and survival in long term. I really like the distinction you make between uh, revolutionary ideology and ideology because. Uh, when many people talk about Iranian ideology, what they are actually talking about is Shia Islam. And I'd be really interested in having you talk through uh, whether you think um, sectarian Islam is the cause of some of these frictions or simply a useful tool for revolutionary ideology, for national power, for uh, as a mobilizing factor for other things? It is actually uh, the latter. It is a useful tool. And um, if you look at different, uh, different alliances that Iran has with non-state actors, not all of them are, are, uh, are Shia. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's mostly a, a more deeply rooted. And actually, there was a, a, a recent piece in Foreign Affairs about the cultural roots of these alliances, which sort of lays out this uh, this question um, very clearly. But I argue that the, these these ideological factors are usually a tool to bring them together because they all need uh, each other. Um, as they're trying to sort of survive or uh, fight stronger forces um, in the region, or for Iran is the case that it will need these strategic allies um, as a, you know in order to deter U.S. Um, from from an attack. Um, so let me pull one other thread on this, which is um, your research about how decisions get made in the Iranian government, and in particular, the role of uh, Ayatollah Khamenei in that decision-making. You not only looked at how his council has taken decisions, but also Ayatollah Khamenei, his predecessor and the great founder of the revolutionary state. Talk our listeners through that, because I, I found that extraordinarily interesting. Sure, so um, my research tries to showcase that this approach to look at uh, the preferences of the leader, uh, currently um, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, or even Khomeini, who was a very charismatic, very strong um, revolutionary leader, um, that this view that you know their preference was is is exactly what's driving Iran's policy. And if they have a preference against something, that will never be a policy option, and so it has to be discarded, is, um, is false. And um, I look at particular uh, highly um, important security decisions since the revolution uh, in which the preference of the leader has been um, one particular course of action, but then the decision and, and the policy that Iran has adopted has been something opposite to that. 
Um, one example would be um, the decision to continue the, the, the war with Iraq in uh, 1982, which was very uh, which was very well perceived by the West as um, Khomeini's ideology to export the revolution and the reason why Iran did not accept the ceasefire and continued the war and entered Iraqi territory was part of a larger strategy to export the revolution. But actually my research shows that that, that was not the case and Khomeini was very much against um, the decision to, for Iranian forces to enter the Iraqi territory. And the military um, uh, officials at the time and uh, uh, Rafsanjani, who was heading the uh, Defense Council uh, at the time, were the ones who convinced him uh, that this would be a necessary step from a military perspective and from a diplomatic perspective to gain leverage um, to do that. And I think had the world not um, misperceived or uh, had the world not thought that this was an aggressive move on Iran's part, their efforts for peacemaking would have been stronger and they, their approach towards Iran and helping to end the, the war would have been different. So you know, I think it's, it's very important to look at what are the dynamics that these decisions are, are made, what are the interests and uh, considerations that goes into these calculation before making, um, making a decision of how to deal with Iran or how to approach policy choices as it regards to Iran. This idea that I have in my work that instead of thinking about decision-making in Iran as a top-down process, it's actually a bottom-up process that even those sort of okay, the Supreme Tell us how that works. So th basically the decision is shaped at the, 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 the I, I wouldn't say lower level, at the president and the advisors and the ministers, etc., in all this sort of uh, the bureaucratic politics, and then the supreme leader gets to sort of either veto or approve the decision. We think about it as, as a leader-driven model. Exactly. We think about it as Khamenei sits and thinks and makes a decision and then sort of directs it, and others just sort of implement it. And, and so that suggests that there are many alternative points that if we had a strategy knowledgeable of those, we might have the ability to influence. Exactly. That's excellent. I'm always struck by people who uh, pretend that they can uh, elegantly outline the decision-making structures of complex, political, opaque political environments, but couldn't tell us whether Congress is going to pass the defense <laughs> budget this year. Right? This is actually objectively right. an extraordinarily difficult thing to do and to get our hands around. And your research is a really important contribution to that. How did you get interested in this work? Uh, that's, um, that's a very um, long story. So I, you know, when I was doing my bachelor's, I would not have thought in, in a million years that I would enter the world of uh, international security. Um, I actually, um, when I started doing my PhD, I got an internship at Harvard Law School working on um, mapping of social media and huh. at, 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 at a sort of a similar research retreat at Harvard, I got to meet a fellow at Belfer Center who was working on uh, Iran's nuclear program and security issues and he suggested that I intern for him as well and through that process I you know, I started becoming more and more interested um, 
in nuclear policy making and nuclear world, and then I started studying it um, more. And you know, I was just fascinated by security studies, and um, that's how I got into it. And and, and I loved every bit of it. It's uh, I'm not going to lie, it's a gloomy world because every day you're, you're dealing with the, the doomsday. Um, and, um, but you know, at the same time, you feel like you have a lot to do to help prevent um, the, the, the mother of all wars or the conflicts that could really um, change the world as we know it. Excellent. And uh, what's your favorite book in your field? So my favorite book is The Strategy of Conflict. Yay! <laughs> By Tom Schelling. So for those listeners who don't know, he was the he was my teacher, the chairman of my dissertation committee. Oh wow, you're that's very lucky. I was very lucky. Yeah, I, I think that book is really timeless, and um, every time uh, a, a sort of a, a negotiations or a crisis is is happening, I recall phrases in different parts of that book and I think to myself it's amazing how some discussions could just be timeless and relevant to every um, conflict that you are sort of encountering and so the arguments um, in the book and sort of the, the, the tools that it gives you to understand um, the interactions amongst players uh, in the world is just incredible, I think. So I am laughing up my sleeve because <laughs> Masa and I have been at our IISS retreat, uh, research retreat, and so I have been reflecting on the institutional culture of IISS as an organization. And this is yet another fingerprint of what I love about this place because uh, 97% of people who work in strategic studies uh, if they have read any Tom Schelling, it will be Arms and Influence, because that's a book about argumentation. Right. Whereas Strategy of Conflict is actually a really hard book to get through. There are a lot of tables about decision-making paths. There are a lot of weighted variables in it. So to choose Strategy of Conflict rather than Arms and Influence marks you as the nerdiest <laughs> among the nerds in the strategic studies community, by which I mean to say my people. So that's just delightful. Okay, what's the conventional wisdom in your field that you, pe that you think people have wrong? So um, the one thing that I think I would like to um, choose for this question is um, Iran's nuclear policymaking. And I think what the conventional wisdom gets usually wrong is that they look at that as in, in a vacuum, the same way as they look at Iran's sort of uh, regional policies in a vacuum. And I think what's really important for us as analysts and researchers is to put these policies in a broader context um, and you know try to understand um, how these issues relate to each other and how they interact and how they uh, fit within the, the, the broader view and, and aims and objectives of, of a country. And I use Iran because this is the particular case that I'm focusing on, but I think it, it applies to any country. And I think once we take out um, one particular issue and just look at it in, in a vacuum and try to understand 
um, the policies related to that without looking at the context. Um, I think we are opening ourselves to a lot of uh, sort of misreading of the politics. Uh, okay, that's an excellent answer in the abstract. I also want to pull you to uh, the immediacy of Iran policy in the moment. So uh, what we see happening now, the United States withdrew from the JCPOA, uh, what, a year ago, a year and a half ago? Mm -hmm. um, and Iran uh, announced a couple of months ago that because they were not getting the benefits of compliance with the treaty, they were gingerly going to start taking some steps that they had not taken. They are going to remain in compliance with the treaty, but they are going to start uh, reprocessing nuclear material again and a couple of other steps. Uh, what should we understand about the context of this policy to help make sure we don't uh, misjudge the Iranians? Sure. So I think what's important here is that um, if we look at Iran's um, measures, they're actually fairly modest in comparison to what has been expected for them to take uh, since the U.S. withdrawal. And um, what is really important to, to, to understand is that if we just look at Iran threatening or giving an ultimatum to take these measures as Iran is, you know, um, uh, is, is, is threatening to violate the JCPOA or whether this is a sign that they would actually want to build a nuclear weapon, etc. I think this is the, the kind of misperception that I'm talking about. Whereas if you look at the context of the announcement, um, I actually wrote a recent piece about the, the specifics of why Iran chose this timing. Um, Tell people where they can read it. Uh, either on foreign policy website or on IISS um, analysis uh, blog. Um, they can read the piece, uh, which details out sort of the, the, the domestic politics that was really driving the timing and some of the decision, and also um, Iran, Russia, and Iran, Oman, kind of the, the uh, some other sort of waiver revocation uh, news that was driving the specifics of the decision, and uh, both of which I think it was fairly overlooked in the analysis about that. But what's really important is that if you look at what Iran is doing, whether in the region or whether in the nuclear field today, uh, it resembles what they have done previously over the years when they feel like they need to build more leverage if they were to get any any concessions. Because the, the, right now, the, the sanctions are really hitting hard on the economy. Um, but at the same time, they feel like they're in a stalemate and they have to break that stalemate. And that actually is very much reminding me of the strategy. Yes, of yes, yes. I was just thinking the same thing. So <laughs> Tom <it's> Schelling <laughs> would be clapping. Yes, exactly. And so they feel what what may seem um, to the outside as a provocation is actually building up leverage for negotiations. And if we miss that, uh, then what we do is we think that, okay, they're provoking us, so we have to provoke back or, or respond that we're not gonna be threatened, and this could very easily escalate and get out of hand. And I add, what, what, what really strikes me is that I think in, in the context of Iran and US, uh, many people talk about these issues as like refer to US and the Soviet Union. 
Um, and I think, or, or the uh, fire and fury of uh, comments and then suddenly the talks of US and North Korea. I think what's missing here is that we cannot apply the models of two actors, uh, i.e. US and Soviet Union at the time, or US and North Korea, to the Iranian case, just because there is so much uncertainty in the region, there's so many other actors involved, um, that any of that could sort of change the model and change the calculations at any time. And I think that is what's creating a dangerous situation, which we should be very well aware of and not leave it to, okay, let's escalate. Uh, and I think Iranians think that way too. They think, okay, we, maybe we can do this and then we um, get the attention or we get more leverage and then the Americans feel the same way. But what, you know, what's really happening is that we have Saudi Arabia in play, we have Israelis, we have so much going on in Syria and Iraq. Um, it, it is just impossible to think that the same dynamics that um, helped prevent a conflict <laughs> between US and Soviet Union or during the Cuban Missile Crisis, or the same dynamics that helped, for, at least for the time being, prevent a conflict between US and North Korea, and the nuclear weapons were really crucial in both those dynamics, are not existent in the Iran and US um, dynamic, as well as other players which will make this sort of game theory um, uh, calculation much more complex and much harder to manage at any point. A cautionary tale. Okay, <laughs> what's your favorite work that you've done? What would you, if people could read just one thing that you'd written, what would you direct them to? What's your favorite piece of your own work? Um, I would say... The article I wrote back in the summer cautioning against um, regime change efforts, regime collapse efforts, um, and sort of um, trying to provide some insights of let's think about the day after. And I really like that piece, and I really like myself to expand on that piece in the future. So I think the most recent and my most favorite would be that. Okay, we will post a link to it <laughs> along with this audio. And now our last question, since all of us at the IISS are data nerds, what's your favorite data visualization? So that's an easy one. Um, first of all, I'm obsessed with visual data analysis, and I really, really hope that at some point I do something in arms and control in nuclear energy, um, sort of a, a visual data analysis. And my favorite is Harvard's economic complexity. Um, and I think they, their sort of visual data um, website is, is very innovative. And um, I, I like how they take a non-conventional approach to um, present you know, data that might otherwise be something that you could find elsewhere. Uh, but they've brought together a variety and they've very interesting presentational ways of this visual data. Excellent. I knew you were going to have one that I hadn't yet <laughs> seen. So thank you for directing me to that. Uh, so here's what I learned uh, in the course of this conversation, that we are wrong to think of a trade-off between ideology and traditional statecraft on the part of Iran, and we're wrong to think about 
um, ideology as religious sect in an Iranian context. That in fact, revolutionary ideology is integral to how the Iranian leadership thinks about its defense and deterrence strategies. And that um, that religious sect, that is the Sunni versus Shia, the way that so many people who uh, aren't Middle East experts frame up the issues between states in the region, um, that we need to consider the possibility, which you made a very strong case for, that uh, that religious sect is just a useful tool for accomplishing their ends. Uh, a third thing I learned is that uh, in the Iranian case, the supreme leader's preferences are not um, don't always carry the argument, and that we're too simplistic if we think that the single point of influence or pressure or decision making in the in the Iranian system is dictated by uh, the supreme leader. Also, uh, I learned that Iranian uh, responses to the U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA and efforts to try and coerce Iran into negotiating what President Trump thinks is a better deal and what many other people would like to see include non-nuclear restraints on Iran, that Iran has actually been quite restrained in reacting to that and is trying to navigate the space between creating greater negotiating leverage or protecting themselves in the event of conflict with the United States and uh, giving enough of a response that it affects American play in this negotiation that Tom Schelling would have loved diagramming in, in strategies of conflict. Um, and the last thing that I learned is about the Harvard economic complexity data visualizations and that I need to go see them. Masa Ruhi, Dr. Masa Ruhi, thank you so much for this conversation and for your outstanding work for the IISS. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Mm -hmm.